Lucy Bellwood, welcome to the Beach Shack Podcast. Thank you so much for having me in this lovely Beach Shack. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, from my favorite Beach Shack in the whole wide world, from Faria Beach in Ventura, California, the beautiful Southern California coast. Uh, This is my mom's beach house and one that is so near and dear to my heart, so... Uh, it's awesome to be broadcasting from this venue, and it's also awesome to be uh, joined by Lucy Bellwood, a fellow Ohioan uh, from Ojai, California, where I am from, but also an extremely talented uh, writer and cartoonist. She's an, an adventurer cartoonist, and she has traveled around the world on ships, uh, interpreting what's going on in these ships into stories into art and we're going to talk to her today all about what she's done i'm going to read a quick bio lucy just so our audience knows exactly who you are Uh, lucy bellwood is a professional adventure cartoonist author educator based in portland oregon very cool city we love portland on the american shoreline podcast network her work brings enthusiastic tales of exploration to thousands of readers online in print and in person so lucy bellwood Welcome to the program. Such a lovely introduction. It's very, very kind of you. Well, Lucy, uh, we had the chance to hang out a bit over the holiday. And uh, I just, once we started to talk about the work you did, I said, we have to do a show because you've got, you've got some sea stories. You've well, got- it's also not common that you talk to somebody who says, oh, I have a podcast. And you're like, yeah, huh? that, that part's very common. It's that 2020. Com- Everyone you know has a podcast. But when you talk to somebody who says, oh, I have a podcast specifically about coastal news, and maritime affairs, you're like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> That's right. That's what we do here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We break are, molds. We are trying to break the mold and unify the discussion of the American shoreline. So I can think here, by the way, I should report to our listeners that we are recording this on New Year's Day 2020. We are, re- we are bringing in the new decade with this podcast. So no, no pressure. pressure. <laughs> no pressure here, Lizzie. <laughs> I'm, I'm selfishly very glad that you were like, let's record at this beach house. And I'm like, yes, I need to stick my feet in the ocean on New Year's Day. It's like very important to me. Well, it's, it is it is a stunningly beautiful day today. Uh, and we I, I just pause and hope that all of our audience, wherever you may be listening, uh, around the American shoreline and around the world, that you are all having a wonderful new year uh, and enjoying your time away for the holidays with your families. Uh, we, as you know, have been... Uh, away from broadcasting for a couple weeks so we're back now uh, Lucy I want to start learning more about you and and your connection with uh, the sea uh, starting from let's let's just start at the very beginning your youth what initially enticed you to uh, becoming interested in maritime affairs as you put it sailing so growing up in Southern California as you know is it's very uh, Ojai is very close to the ocean it's 20 minute drive it's not far at all uh, I was born in L.A. to two English parents who spent a lot of time dragging me to the ocean when I was a kid, which I was terrified of it at first. I have memories of like being you know, lifted over incoming waves by my father while I screamed blue murder. But over time, it became one of my very favorite places to be. And even after we moved to Ojai when I was two, I spent countless hours as a child shuttling back and forth to the coast and getting in the water and going to Bates Beach mostly, which I learned recently is no longer called Bates Beach on Google Maps. I think someone was trying to recommend the beach and the person was like, it doesn't exist. I'm like, maybe it's better that way if we keep it. It will ourselves. forever be Bates. Yeah. For those What's of it us called now? Rincon something? I'm not sure. Yeah. But it, it has is. Some it's meaning. a classic. It's a beautiful beach. Uh, 
so yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in the ocean growing up. I also, you know, dad, as a child in Southern California, it's like contractually obligated that you try surfing. Uh, I wasn't very good at it, but I did like it. Um, and I think the the interesting thing is that when I go back and try to look at sort of retconning when my interest in tall ship sailing specifically arose, like historical sailing ships, I used to think that it was something that was very sort of middle school age for me, like early 2000s. But it turns out recently I was uncovering this box of uh, memorabilia from my childhood and I found drawings from when I was probably like four or five even of now this was a little incorrect because I was drawing sort of boat shaped things with sails but also smokestacks and it was the SS Lucy which of course stands for steamship but it should have been SV for sailing vessel if it has sail technically you know whatever yeah I was young I had time it, to it learn. sounds like you were drawn to that transitional technology period though you know, <laughs> know maybe it had maybe it had a screw on it but yeah. also sails right because you know? we're old-fashioned around yeah here. Uh, so yeah, it was fascinating to find those and be like, wow, I was drawing ships at an early age and I had like coloring books with tall ships in them, you know, and I was exposed to like reading, uh, gosh, like classics of maritime children's literature, like uh, Swallows and Amazons, which um, is a wonderful series by uh, Arthur Ransom about a group of young children in the Lake District in England um, having sailing adventures together, not at sea, but uh, on lakes. And it's very sort of pirate adjacent stuff. Uh, and I, I grew up reading... Lots of stories that really attracted me to the sea that that type of adventure was very appealing. I never thought it was something that you could still do for real. Right. Uh, and that is probably why I usually trace it to around high school where my sort of general like pirate obsession really kicked off. It was a very hot time for pirates. Uh, it was. Early 2000s. There was lots of Pirates of the Caribbean happening. I'm not proud. Um, <laughs> I will say also that uh, I, I also had a... So my parents are both creative freelancers where the sort of disreputable side of the family. My uncle is very fiscally responsible and uh, used his financial means to purchase a beach house in Cayucas, California, ah. up near uh, Morro Bay. And going there as a child, it was also a similar scenario to this, that like you have this incredible view looking out over the water. There were caves there. There was a lot of make-believe pirate action that happened with no kidding. my best friend and I when we were probably you know, 10, 11, 12. And we were both hooked on Cutthroat Island at that age. It was like, and still for my money, is the best pirate film ever made, despite being a massive box office failure. Uh, I think it's perfect. I love it. Hold on a second. I don't know if I've heard of this film. What? Cutthroat Island? <laughs> Boy, do not let me hijack your podcast. I have yeah. spent entire shows where well-meaning cartoonists are like, let's interview about your comics and like talk about your work. I'm like, no, we're going to talk about Cutthroat Island for an hour and a half and you're going to love it. Okay. Well, maybe we will save it for later, but yeah, I, it's I, a, it's a beautiful film. It, it stars Gina Davis uh, and what Matthew Modine, uh, Frank Langella, like it's star studded cast, total mess of a film about a lady pirate adventurer uh, love it looking for buried treasure and it's great it's way okay. more progressive than Pirates of the Caribbean by long shot anyway uh, there is I don't know if you ever attended it the Gold Coast Pirate Festival at Lake Casitas in Ojai no I have not oh god you're missing out my friend I might have to go at, at a future yep it's always, there's always time uh, as long as the lake is sort of there yeah uh, <laughs> So it was a kind of a renaissance festival, but with a more sea dogs kind of flair to it. Uh, and going to that introduced me to a bunch of people who would dress up like pirates. And I was really excited about that part. But then I got there and was like, oh, you just kind of dress up and then that's it. And like no shade, right? I have a lot of friends who work the, yeah. the festival circuit and do that all the time. And they have a ton of fun. But I was like, I want to get in a boat. You know? totally. Can you do that? The best they offered was the year that I went, there was a big advertisement about like, oh, real pirate ship. And I was so excited. And then at the end of the little rickety dock going out into muddy Lake Casitas was the saddest, tiniest, like dog sized 
pirate ship, pirate ship in scare yeah. quotes I had ever seen. And I was like, this is, I got to get out of here. Uh, <laughs> so my, um, at the time I was subscribed to a very nerdy quarterly magazine called No Quarter Given, which was a <laughs> pirate magazine. Wow. Uh, and in, this was like early internet access for me. So I wasn't like out on Google, you know. No Quarter Given. No Quarter Given. The still quarterly exists. pirate magazine. Correct. Still in publication. For the discerning mariner. Uh, wow. And there was a listing in there of vessels seeking crew. And they had um, a link to a website where there was a whole sort of billet bank of ships that were looking for crew members. And I didn't get very far down it because I just clicked on the first listing, which is for the Alve, a sailing vessel in the South Pacific. And the first thing on their website is like, live the life of an 18th century tall ship sailor. Come crew aboard the Alve. And I was like, what? And I was a junior in high school at that point. So it wasn't really viable for me to fly halfway around the world to New Zealand to get on a boat and spend several months at sea. But uh, the Lady Washington, um, beloved sailing vessel of the Pacific Northwest, usually comes through Ventura every Christmas or January, depending if they're doing a California tour. Um, and every year my family would be like, oh, yeah, that thing is coming. We should go. And we never yeah. put two and two together. And that year I said, we're going. And then I found out subsequently my high school history teacher's sister crewed on tall ships and was a total badass. Anyway, long story short, we went, you can buy like a a battle sail where you go out for three hours and the Lady Washington and her beautiful sister ship, the Hawaiian Chieftain, go fire blanks at each other for a couple of hours and it's very fun. It sounds sounds like a lot of fun. Oh boy. And for, you know, a 16 year old with a penchant for adventure at sea, it was like, this is it. This is the actual place I want to be. Let me ask some questions here. So, um, first of all, I'm tracking the story 100%. <laughs> I think our audience is going to be really resonating probably with a lot of us. But uh, so just a couple questions when you'd go out on this battle at sea thing. Um, now, we, these are you, we are these. There's no I know these are old ships completely wind powered, right? There's no so engines. By, by Coast Guard standards, you're required to have an engine. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. The Charles Morgan is the, one of the few historic vessels okay. of that size. And because it gets away with it by being an actual original landmark, I'll tell you a little bit about these ships. The Lady Washington, yeah. uh, we're the same age, so she's about 30, uh, was built in 1989 uh, as a replica of the original Lady Washington, which was a historic vessel active in the late 1700s. Um, as a trading ship moving between Boston and the Pacific Northwest and China in the tea trade. So uh, the ship as she stands now is most famous for being the Black Pearl in Pirates, or no, excuse me, yes, the Black Pearl, right? The fastest ship in the Caribbean? Yes. No, the Interceptor, I'm sorry, the Interceptor. The Interceptor. You can tell I haven't been on tours for a long time Uh because I used to just recite this stuff Uh off of memory. People would always say the Black Pearl, and I'm like, no, no, the Black Pearl is a fake ship built on a barge. Uh Um, But the Lady Washington played the Interceptor, the fastest ship in the Caribbean, which is hilarious because... From Pirates of the Caribbean. Correct. Okay. Uh, And the, the ship is a cargo ship. She's not built for speed. And so for anyone who's paying attention when the characters in Pirates of the Caribbean are like, oh, the fastest ship in the Caribbean, you're like, That's a, it's, she's built like a bathtub. You know, it's not, <laughs> not built for speed, but it's fine. Right. Uh, the Hawaiian Chieftain is um, a little, I believe, a little younger as uh, a steel-hulled uh, topsail catch that was built for a private owner in Hawaii and now is under the aegis of the Grays Harbor Historical Seaport Authority, which is the organization that owns and operates both vessels. And they, okay. their mission is primarily uh, educational. They travel up and down the west coast of the U.S., stopping at ports. And they do um, school group tours, taking kids out sailing. They do tours to the public, like the one that I went on. And the crew, um, officers and uh, core crew are paid, but most of the crew are volunteers. 
And so when I got on board, I was immediately like, how do what I, I need to do this? Because everyone on the crew, it wasn't just being on the ship, right? Which is 112 feet long, stem to stern, and just absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the Lady Washington is what you think when you think of an old school 18th century golden age of sail brig. Um, uh-huh. She's gorgeous. She's wooden. Uh, she has two masts and lovely sails and uh, just completely won my heart. Uh-huh. Uh, but the crew were also all just young and excitable and running around quoting Eddie Izzard to each other, which to a young huh. nerdy person was like, my people. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very uh, it was very intense for me being there. And I immediately collared one of the crew members and was like, how can how can I do what you do? Please t- mm-hmm. take me with you. I'll go right now. I'm sorry, Mom. I have to go. And uh, they said, oh, you can volunteer. You, we have a two week training program. Back then it was 500 bucks and you would come. It covers room and board and everything. You live on board. And then at the end of that time, you're a trained volunteer and you can come back whenever and go sailing, Huh? which is incredible. And so when you I mean, so what what would the responsibilities of a volunteer be? At the beginning, it's a lot of getting yelled at and not understanding the words that people are saying to you. So okay. it's very enthusiastic people saying, go over there, haul this foretop mistacial halyard. And you're like, I, uh, OK. <laughs> and then you're running around in circles and people are gently pointing you in the direction you should be going. Um, it's a lot of information. Like two weeks is really the joke is that it's called two weeks before the mast after the famous book of a slightly similar name. Um, and it, two weeks is like enough time to know that you don't know what you don't know yeah right right there's i think 114 distinct lines on the vessel that all have different names there are a ton of different sails you've got to understand uh the actual dynamics of how the ship is working which i think a lot of the time you know folks who come from a a sailing background have this understanding of wind mechanics and operating sails as a deckhand a lot of the time all you're paying attention to is like when this person yells this incomprehensible word i go over here and haul on this hard thing that makes my hands bleed and that's Uh it you know yeah. Um, but you're also going aloft like you're learning about sail handling you're climbing out on the yard arm you were doing all of the stuff that you read and see in historical literature about that time period which is incredible so uh obviously you're at this point in your life story you're in high school yeah so i i went and did my two-week uh training my spring break of senior year and then was so hooked that I was like, I have to go back and do this immediately. And so I went again over the summer and then again in the winter. Um, the summer tour was a, a trip up to the San Juan Islands in the Pacific Northwest, wow. which was, again, one of one of the highlight experiences of my entire life. Uh, and the fall trip was a very different experience, taking the Lady Washington from Aberdeen, Washington to San Francisco in October, which is wow. the wrong time of year to be Sailing going south. down there. Yeah, um, It was a transit that, on average, they were like, ah, oh, it usually takes five days. It took us 10. Oh, uh, really? And there were many mishaps along the way. Uh, but we arrived in one piece, more or less, and it was definitely valuable because one of the top questions, uh, my book, Baggy Wrinkles, is named after the number one question you get on the Lady Washington, which is, what are those fuzzy things in the rigging? Ah. Um, which is, baggy wrinkle are the chafe gear that sit between the lines and the sails on the spanker, specifically at the back of the vessel, um, and stop it from chafing through. The, and, the sail? Yeah, so the, okay. the ropes that run, the two lines that run on either side of the spanker, if the wind is billowing it out to either side, it's rubbing against the line. And so you don't want to develop holes, obviously, in such a large piece of sailcloth. Um, and so you use old line that's been frayed and re-knotted to create these sort of... It looks like someone stuck a rope through a poodle. You know, right, it's, right, it's right. small and 
uh, furry, like a Highland sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and people always want to know what they're called. But the trouble is because everything on a tall ship has an odd name, you have to say with a straight face, oh, that's a baggy wrinkle, madam. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you get a lot of people saying, I beg your pardon. Yeah. <laughs> Getting very upset. Uh-huh. But uh, the second most common question I would say is that you get people who, uh, no, that's not true. You get people who want to ring the bell, which is for emergencies. So uh-huh. there's a lot not of. Not allowed. Yeah, a lot of that. Unless there's an emergency, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but people always want to know, have you seen any rough weather? Like, what's the worst? Obviously, you don't sail when the weather is bad. I'm like, they did back in the day. You know? Yeah. And uh, the that, Lady Washington is, uh, I'm assuming, capable of handling b- regular. A lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh. obviously, the the sinking of the bounty, I think, was a, a pretty um, sobering experience for a lot of folks as a big replica vessel um, that went down in Hurricane Sandy. I don't know if you followed this news. At the I time, did not. Tell, tell our listeners about this. Oh, boy. Um, so for the the film Mutiny on the Bounty, a replica of Captain Bly's ship was constructed, um, not to scale, but actually 125% of the original really? size to accommodate film crews. So she was, I mean, the Lady Washington is stunning. By other standards, she's tiny. She's a bathtub toy, especially compared to the Bounty. The first time I set foot on board her, it was at a Tall Ships Festival in uh, Port Townsend, maybe, Um, or Victoria in British Columbia. And it was just like, oh, this is a, this is the real deal. It's massive. Um, But also massive in a way that's like how it is expensive and hard to keep vessels maintained. I can only imagine. Um, Especially wooden ships. It's like... People joke all the time, you know, when I do crowdfunding campaigns to print books, they're like, you should just take that money and buy a boat. I'm like, oh, that's goodbye all my money. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just is not an easy way to um, keep a hold of any kind of cash. So, well, you know, we uh, for our Memorial Day special, I believe it was Memorial Day. No, it was for our Fourth of July special. Mm-hmm. We had on a historian to talk about the maritime history of the Revolutionary War. Oh, wow. And one of the many uh, interesting little tidbits that he told us about was, well, for one, how these old wooden ships were slapped together. I mean, the, while ship built, I mean, the, the colonial people of the day, and I mean, I'm only referencing this because you're talking about these big wooden ships, but, you know, these people could build ships. Uh, At the drop of a hat. <laughs> uh, yeah, they could, they could cut down a tree and turn it in, t- cut down trees and turn them into boats, b- big ships that could sail across the ocean. They had this knowledge. Yeah. Um, some of you know they they could do it. Some of them could do it quite well, but they could figure it out, and it, they did. Um, the other interesting thing that he said is just how many people worked in in, in shipbuilding or oh, the yeah. maritime industry. Period, and a small percentage of them would have been the sailors. You know, right. a huge support of the harbor and keeping you know replacing stuff. And, oh yeah, I mean, Lord knows. And whenever I've you know, I haven't personally had the experience to go on to, to do what you have done, mm. though. I have to say I, I'm like drooling over here as you're yeah, describing I've got, it. I've got some places to send you. I mean, the Los Angeles Maritime Institute is like, oh, my Lord, right down there. You can get on. I've, ship tomorrow. I've seen uh, like documentaries of, uh, you know, maintenance being done on these ships, yeah. like on YouTube. Some of these ships actually have. Uh, I believe the Constitution has... Yeah, they do a lot of great outreach there. Yeah. Their museum is spectacular, When they're, like, too. W- you know, waxing down or, or using tar on the ropes and shit. And it's like, yeah, there's all sorts of ancient... I say ancient, you know, just very just old... Just traditional skills, traditional right? Traditional skills have the opportunity and to techniques learn. that kept these ships afloat. Um, 
And the answer is that it was incredibly labor intensive. Then. Oh, yeah. And when you compute, when you take that and turn it into a modern thing and it's this like, you need skilled now. Now not everyone knows how to do this, and you and need like skilled carpenters and stuff. Like it is very much an oral tradition in a lot of ways. You know, oh, you're totally. coming on board and you're learning. Whoever's the bosun at that time, their knowledge and skill set is getting passed on to you. Of like, how do you sew a grommet? You know, what does the sail construction look like? And I think the really cool thing to see has been how programs like the Lady Washingtons have interfaced with um, like sailmakers programs that are springing up at sailmaking lofts around the Pacific Northwest wow. or. Uh, you know, the Wooden Boat Center or the Center for Wooden Boats in Port Townsend um, is like shuttling people in there. There's a new program they've just launched that's fixed on, um, I'm spacing on the name of it right now, but it's uh, a specific program designed to get underrepresented populations uh, up to speed and trained and into the maritime workforce. So specifically women, people of color, queer folks, like creating an environment that is more welcoming and conducive to those people. And I think as a woman, working in a maritime field, it was something that was so, I didn't realize at the time how revolutionary it was to be in that environment. And when I recommend operations to send people to, the number one question I get from people, and I field a lot of them online, because I have a lot of folks who are like, oh my God, A, you can do this. Like I'm very humbled to report that a a number of people have gone and become sailors because of reading my comics, which is just, a dream come true. So it's cool. the thing I wish I could have had at that age. It's so cool to see that that's <laughs> that people that you've inspired people in that way. It blows my mind. I mean, it's also deeply terrifying when someone emails you and they're like, "Hello from a plane somewhere above Vancouver, British Columbia. I've just sold all my possessions and I'm traveling north to join the Lady Washington. <laughs> Please God, let this work out for yeah. you." But I think the um, the Grays Harbor ships in particular have a very strong commitment to fostering this um, welcoming and inclusive environment, and I really see that reflected in the crew. And that's something that uh, I'm delighted to see them putting actual like institutional programming behind and having a workforce oriented track because I think uh, there it, it is a whole industry still you know it's not the shipbuilding the shipyards of yore but there are still you know folks who are looking for people with maritime experience and it's an amazing line of work to go into as far as crafts and trades. So totally. it's, uh, it, yeah, there's so many skills that people learn and I think you get to interface with folks in such a cool way. There's a load of um, like indigenous justice work that's also being done with the Lady Washington specifically oh, cool. because a lot of that trading was in the Pacific Northwest. Um, the Lady Washington accompanied the Columbia Red Aviva, which is a big famous historical ship, uh-huh. sailed up the Columbia River. Um, and one of the things that's been most meaningful has uh, been seeing interactions between modern Lady Washington crew and uh, members of various tribes up and down their trading routes who have now engaged in trade ceremonies and like broken bread together and had these opportunities to um, first of all I think you know atone in a certain sense for uh, taking taking advantage of those populations and also to kind of foster this continued relationship between the two groups and it's something that I've gotten more interested in over time as my own level of social awareness has gone up you know as a young person I wasn't as clued into native activism as I may be now no kidding um, yeah. but I think that's something that as I get older I'm like wow this is really actually pretty magical to to realize that this is an organization that is trying to I I think because it's something that with living history, a lot of the time, you know, you see this discussion come up a lot around like civil war reenactment and you're like, who are we supporting here in, you know, um, in reenacting this or like the nostalgia, you know, the conversation of nostalgia around plantation weddings right now. There's a lot of people like defending their right to get married in a plantation because it's just, I don't want to be bothered with all this slavery nonsense. And you're like, well, it's kind of 
what was happening. So yeah. we should talk about it. Um, and so I think there's something about that that when I, as I come back to these organizations um, and contemplate, you know, the broader implication of uh, being on a historical vessel that, let's face it, you know, tall ships, in addition to being deeply romantic and very exciting, were also harbingers of genocide for a lot of populations, you know, the harbingers of colonialism and slavery. Yes. And like, there is this huge dark history. And this is something that I haven't, you know, my work is largely aimed at a sort of all ages audience. And so it's something that I'm on the precipice of like, how can I foster more conversation around this? Because I think it, it's a little, I don't want to say naive, but um, it's a little blinkered to just be like, I just want to keep the romance. Cause this was something that bothered me no about kidding. people and pirates all the we, time. Look, I'll just say right now we are uh, for the American shoreline podcast, our flagship uh, podcast on the American shoreline podcast network. Uh, we have a logo that is a black and white icon of a tall ship. Uh-huh. And I have been contacted one time uh, so far by a person who found it to be offensive mm -hmm. and um, for the for the very reason that you're talking about that yeah. it was a triggering image yeah. and uh, she pointed out that um, that image of a, it, it brought up feelings of being dominated by colonial power mm -hmm. and in fact these ships were the principal uh, show of colonial power. It's like for having a tank hundreds of years. on your logo, no, you know, it, it, from a particular time frame. The modern, the modern equivalent would be a tank, yeah. you know, in Prague or something. And it's a, it's a tricky line to walk because I think you know, um, it, it is still an era that captures people's imaginations across all different types of cultural and racial lines. And there is something you know very beautiful and liberating and empowering about parts of it, but there are other parts of it that I think. It's, it's just worth having a fully nuanced conversation about all the potential angles. And, you know, looking at the Lady Washington, it's like sometimes you can't right these wrongs. But I think by acknowledging them and addressing them, there's something powerful about that. And, you know, it's also there are so many corners of history that deserve greater scrutiny and, you know, greater accuracy. Like the thing that bothered me about the cultural moment for pirates was that people were very like, oh, Jack Sparrow is just so nice. Like pirates are so great. And it really bothered me because I was like, you know, pirates on the whole were kind of awful. Like yeah. they killed people, a lot of people. Um, sure, they existed outside of hegemonic power structures that were dominant in the day, but it, there's also, it's just not all sunshine and roses. And I think getting into any sort of historical research around these time periods, you start to learn that like, wow, the food really was dreadful. Okay. The medical conditions were we, we, really bad. We gotta talk about this because okay, I let's think do it. we're getting into something, we're getting into uh, this nexus of uh, interests and skills and, and loves that you have. Mm -hmm. So obviously you, you get sucked into this uh, life on these tall ships with all of the little, you know, with all of the hangups, the histories, the um, politics, the colorful all, characters, the, the colorful <laughs> characters, all of it um, at the same time, or maybe not at the same time, but you're also an artist. You're also a storyteller mm -hmm. And how did these, when did these things start to come together and describe how that happened? So when I got into sailing, it was right after high school. I took a gap year before I went off to college in Portland. And so I spent a lot of that um, traveling on my own and then like a solid three or four months on the Lady Washington going up and down the West Coast. And that was the longest stretch of um, being aboard that I had done aside from these shorter trips to go do transits and family camps and things. 
And uh, I wasn't, I was drawing. I was an avid artist as a young person. My mother uh, used to draw sort of single panel gag cartoons for a while. She had her own business. My dad is a screenwriter. My mother also works in um, like script consulting. Uh, So I came from a very visual arts and writing oriented household. But I, I joke that I was dense because it took me a long time to figure out that I could put visual arts and writing together and make comics of my own. Uh, and I, I credit a huge part of that with coming up at a time when uh, there were a large number of female cartoonists, independent cartoonists, who were publishing web comics in the sort of early web comics boom that was happening uh, between me being in sort of middle school and late high school, or, or maybe even into college, really. Mm-hmm. And these were women who uh, were not really waiting for permission from publishers. They weren't seeking syndicated slots in newspapers. They were just putting out work largely autobiographical online about the things that they were passionate about. And yeah. that passion ranged, you know, everything from slice of life comics about sexuality and relationships all the way over to like deeply weighty historical 18th century theologian, theologian librarians uh, in Germany, which um, kind of ran the gamut. But there was a crew of folks from an organization called Pants Press. And I say organization very loosely. It was like a bunch of teen girls who were making comics together. Right. And that crew, um, really got me into it and I think it was sort of half that and half reading a lot of early web comics about boys playing video games which was my social group largely I didn't have a lot of other friends who were into drawing comics um, I went to small weird Ojai schools and so I was nurtured and encouraged but it wasn't like I was in a large enough organization to uh, have this collection of other peers who were, you know, trading drawing comics with me. That was where Pants Press came from. Is uh-huh. These teens knew each other in IRL, right? And were making comics together. Um, but as... IRL, for, for some of our <laughs> listeners, we're going to have to... In real life. In real life. In real uh, life. Versus the early internet. That's right. Um, so, yeah, those folks who were making work really got me inspired to like, oh, I I could be doing this, you know? Um and it's it's that thing about why representation matters in media is like if you can see it you can understand that you could do it right so i started uh making comics probably not until i got to college though honestly like still i was drawing up a storm i was trying to tell um stories in writing i was doing a lot of reading but i would say i was well into college before i went and did um a five-day workshop at a place called the center for cartoon studies which is at its time it was uh, at the time this was 2010 uh it was one of the few graduate programs specifically geared towards cartooning Uh in the country and now there are a large number of undergraduate and graduate degrees because we're in the middle of a renaissance it's great it is But at the time, uh, they offered these five-day summer workshops. And I was like, you know, this seems like a good opportunity to go and dip my toe into this and, like, Mm -hmm. commit for a little bit. And on the way over there, I had no idea, like, what the... mm, I remember being on the train going up. It's in White River Junction, Vermont. And I was on the train being like, what could I possibly make a comic about in five days that would be interesting or unique? What have I done with my life that's worthy of an autobiographic... Oh, the tall ship sailing. And I was like, great, okay, this makes perfect sense. I'm going to go. I'm going to make a comic about Tall Ship Sailing. By this point, had you, were you still 
where were you at with tall ship sailing? Were you over it? Or well, I was you... in college, so I was I was busy. Um, yeah. I was sneaking away. I would say my first couple of years in undergrad, I I was sneaking off to do um, like you know over Christmas break, I would weekend warrior it and like go down to Los An- Los Angeles Maritime Institute, who I mentioned earlier. Um, they have uh, a couple of sailing vessels, um, the Irving and Exe Johnson, um, huh. named after Irving Johnson, the pioneer of sail training. Who was he and Exe, uh, his wife, took teenagers around the world in uh, their vessel. And were, he was kind of the person who was like, you know, I think we should, I think there's something to this, like dragging children out onto the unforgiving sea and making them learn life skills. Like, I think yeah. there's something to that. And now the American Sail Training Association is, um, well, now they've rebranded, I think, their Tall Ships America, which gives them the unfortunate acronym of TSA, which is confusing <laughs> when you're trying to recommend it to people. And they're like, you want me to go join the TSA? I'm like, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he was the the pioneer of that field, and so he um, was uh, a big part of that organization. And they named these two vessels after him and his wife. Wow! So I did some weekend warrior kind of sailing with yeah. them, going out to Catalina Island for longer trips with teens um, from the LA area. And I was still very much in love with it, but just like getting sucked into. Uh, I went to a very rigorous academic school, and so I was just yeah. drowning under schoolwork all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but still very interested in the sea and still very interested in comics. Okay. And so by my junior year, 2010, the summer after my junior year, or the summer before, I think, that was when I went to CCS. And so it was this perfect storm of like all these things that I was excited about. You know, I'd started dabbling in making my own comics and being in Portland, I was able to go to the Stumptown Comics Festival, RIP, doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Um, but at the time, it was like my first opportunity to meet all of these cartoonists who uh, I'd been following since my high school days, who now coincidentally found themselves living in Portland and right. uh, they actually a large number of them were part of a studio there which was then fittingly called Periscope Studio mm. and now is known as uh, Helioscope and I ended up becoming a, a, an intern there for some time but anyway the the thing at CCS was kind of magical because it was the first environment I'd been in where I was surrounded by other cartoonists there were probably 36 program participants all different ages all different skill levels all different interests but everybody there was like there to draw comics, right? And it was wild to me. Now help. Let's uh, now again, for the benefit of me, <laughs> uh, maybe some of you listening out there would will appreciate this as well. But um, uh, w- you know, we grew up with the Sunday comics in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, we always, you know, I remember looking in history class, for example, uh, looking at old political cartoons. Sure. Um, We've, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm. What I want you to do is talk a little bit about the power of a cartoon. Oh yeah, uh, and why, as someone who's an adventure journalist, mm-hmm. I guess, <laughs> as well as a cartoonist, yeah, how these things, how these puzzle pieces fit together. Why does cartooning, um, why does it work so well for storytelling mm-hmm. and? bringing adventures and cartoons and as we will get to uh, later science and you know kind of these these heavier journalistic things i don't you know i don't want to discount any of these experiences no no i think there's there's a lot of strength in it well i think there are some historical precedents that i find really fascinating if you consider an era before photography right where every voyage that was dispatched had a voyage artist who was responsible for illustrating the things that they found you know the people they encountered those artists were um, blessed and cursed with an enormous amount of responsibility because their depictions had spin you know how you choose to 
paint a landscape or you know in encounters with locals like what do you illustrate there and it's something that's hard looking for visual references of the time period um to come across where you're like oh this is all filtered through a very like white european artistic gaze enter photography there's no need for voyage documentarians in that particular field anymore right but you look at these old like whaling ship logs you know yes. or the, there are incredible artifacts out there in maritime museums of just regular you know seamen who were sailing and also making incredible watercolor paintings or like there's a long tradition of it which i just love so in a modern context i think we're a very visual culture still um we're more saturated with images than we've ever been before i would argue no kidding um and that you know a lot of that is advertising i read this wild statistic the other day that the average person encounters five thousand advertisements per day i'm not surprised i'm not surprised either like when i actually think about it i'm like oh my god this is staggering um but uh, we also just consume so much visual media. And I think um, I'm a very wordy person. Yes, I, you are. I, can, I struggle. This, this we know. To be succinct. Uh, and in comics, I think it's, it's valuable because you have to really drill down to the essential nature of what you're trying to communicate. And right. it also, you know, a lot of people, their entry point to thinking about graphic novels or like the new wave of comics that we're coming up in right now is Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is a retelling of a very personal narrative about the Holocaust, but all of the German Nazi characters have been cast as cats, and all the Jews have been cast as mice. And everybody in schools, you know, has probably read this now. It's, like, become the touchstone thing, and we're, we're way past it in terms of output from other people, and the, the field is much richer in additional content. But I think it remains kind of the, the oft-cited gold standard of the power in taking a difficult subject, wrapping it in something that makes it visually approachable because the truth of the matter is so unpalatable, challenging, terrifying like to, to engage with. And I think comics are seductive. They are, depending on your style, but you know, I have a very like bright, simple, clean, people often say, oh, it's like Hergé, you know, it's like Tintin. Mm -hmm. It's very um, lean Claire is the style, like clear mm -hmm. line style. And uh, it's cartoony and it's friendly. And so if somebody picks that up, they're like, oh, I'm going to read this fun light thing about a thing. And you might suddenly find yourself reading about, you know, some big issue, something to do with climate change, something to do with history that you maybe didn't think you were going to learn about. And the best learning I find happens when people are engaged in a narrative and when they are connected to characters that they really care about. Yeah, I think I think this is a good moment for us to move into what I what I consider to be the real meat and potatoes of, of this mm. conversation, which Love is potatoes. yeah, here we are. Uh, we've just been warming up uh, here, ladies and gentlemen. We're getting into the main course because uh, here we are. We're moving into the Roaring Twenties, as I'm calling them. This is the this will be the environmental decade. Yeah, um, uh, this is pretty much it. Uh, we will be doing the the major transitional. Uh, psychological uh, transformations that we will need to make as a, as a society, the the decisions to address climate change. And for those of us who are interested in our oceans and coasts, uh, we are already seeing a, an interest in managed retreat now as opposed to, you know, armament. And I'm sitting here at, at this beach house that we're at right now. We're looking at the most armored stretch of the California uh, shoreline mm -hmm. uh, that is residential. And it is, it has two massive concrete uh, bulkheads uh, built on into it that has prevented the shore from naturally eroding. 
Uh, no, no beach renourishment here. This thing is just slowly but surely eroding. And there's the Pacific Coast Highway and railroad lines and the 101 freeway and a bunch of oil uh, stuff just on the other side. And it just shows you how this space was, how decisions were made on how we we're going to use this space. Yep. And I'll tell you, folks, I think we're going to be reevaluating these decisions here in the next uh, 10 years, this yeah. next decade. So, and, and one of the ways that we're going to be doing this is framing the issues up. And that's why ASPN exists. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we travel around to conferences and film festivals that deal with our oceans and coasts to try to create a unified language of the shoreline so that we can uh, manage these problems because they're also interconnected and they're also damn complicated. Mm -hmm. And um, just like perhaps some of your larger uh, tall ships, uh, they don't turn, we don't turn so quickly. It requires a lot of, uh, a lot of heaves and moving stuff around. A lot of yelling. A lot of yelling. Some weeping. Some weeping. (laughs) Some gnashing of teeth. Oh my my lord, (laughs) yeah. Some bloody palms. Some bloody palms. But you can't change it if you don't know it, you know, and you can't care about it if you don't know it. I think this is something that a lot of conservationists highlight is like the reason that we produce, you know, nature documentaries or we, it's like you need to introduce people to these environments so that they understand what they stand to lose. And the other, the other thing is, uh, we are, and we discussed this the other day in our pre-interview, but, um, are we, I don't know if our listeners will remember our interview and I'm going to blank on her name, so I'm not going to say it, but we, we did an interview at, uh, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association National Conference in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina this year. And, uh, we learned there was an assessment that, Look, we're data rich now. We have so much information. We have computers. We can see the information. We can access the information. It's almost overwhelming how much information it's is that. It's absolutely out of- overwhelming. So all of a sudden, it the trick comes becomes how do you trigger your imagination to interpret the information in a way that is useful? Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that narrative is a way to link together these silos of data, these data points that we believe to be true or not, or mysterious or whatever, and connect them in a way that is um, interesting and and maybe even uh, emotionally uh, will emotionally invest us so that we're so that we give a shit because we got to give a shit. It's very important. It's a very important part. So, uh, Lucy, I want to. Um, so an interesting thing happened here that I don't think you planned, but it's it's super cool that it did happen. So you you started off, you kind of were like, okay, I sail on tall ships. Mm-hmm. I'm a cartoonist. I made this short comic about sailing on tall ships, and then people really dug it. And then I kept making short comics about sailing on tall ships, and people really dug those. And you kind of developed a brand. Yeah. And it was a it was a very specific brand. Uh, I'm glad to report that it hasn't actually pigeonholed me too much. I do other kinds of things. It's not just tall ship sailing. You know, there's a reason I say just before we started recording, I was saying I used to bill myself as America's only dual citizen tall ship sailing cartoonist. Um, But that's a very specific niche. And I think it's powerful because uh, you don't have to be the best if you're the only one. Now, it turns out there are actually other tall ship sailors who are also cartoonists, which I think is absolutely buck wild and incredible. Um, But I think having people, giving people something to latch onto like that is very helpful. And by dint of doing this, I started getting offers. You know, people who are into maritime history, other tall ship sailors, they're not used to seeing what they do reflected accurately in media. Um, Right. that's, That's pretty true across the board. If you have a subculture that 
society often there was that meme that went around a couple of years ago about like this is what I do for a living this is what my mom thinks I do this is what my friends think I do this is what the media thinks I do this is what I actually do right and all of those different lenses are you know true in different ways but um especially with sailors what I found is that they get really excited when they're like oh you're you're one of us and you're telling these stories and they were all you know some of it was setting the record straight about how walking the plank was a really inefficient way to kill someone on a tall ship there's not a lot of actual <laughs> primary evidence that it happened very yeah. often uh, other chapters were about the history of scurvy uh, which is a fascinating disease I highly recommend that chapter it's very good and very gross um, like all good maritime history it's disgusting yes <laughs> but uh, but then you know people started to realize like oh Lucy's into this stuff so if I hear about opportunities related to it I should send them her way yeah so that led to this trip on the Charles W. Morgan the last wooden whaling ship in the world getting to go out and they hadn't taken this so they reached out. out to you they did yeah and because you were they wanted what 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 were they looking for so this was an interesting scenario the the charles morgan hadn't been sailing actually in 90 years she had been a dry a a dockside exhibition at mystic seaport in connecticut um which is a very you know famous kind of immersive maritime history uh village that you can go to and uh, they have a couple of vessels there but the morgan was notable for being an original wooden whaling ship and uh they i believe it was 1841 is the original date anyway um 1800s and they reached out and said, we're going to do this 38th voyage, this final voyage, this huge restoration project. We're going to tour her all around, go to all these different eastern seaboard areas, talk to the public. And on every leg of the voyage, they had 38th voyagers. And these were documentary film crews. These were artists. These were musicians, like people who were coming and bringing their craft to help document the voyage. So I actually just went out with them for a day. I flew across the country. We went to the Stilwegan Marine Preserve and saw more whales than I've ever seen in my life in one place. And it was... That's good. That's good news. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. And really kind of staggering because the, the Lady Washington was a vessel that was built to be sailed, you know, has been sailing continuously almost since her construction. The Morgan hadn't sailed in 90 years. So all these shipwrights, all these people had been coming in with their traditional knowledge and doing restoration work. But the crazy thing, talking to the captain, was that they didn't know they had written accounts of how she handled they had written accounts of what it would be like out there but nobody knew for sure and so when they actually got out you know the captain the crew all these sailors are like oh my god it's better than we could have hoped oh my oh Lord. they said that she does this thing where she kind of lists to starboard when you do that, and like she does <laughs> you know they oh, were wow. just discovering all of this um truth that was locked up in like the ship that was made to be used made to be sailed totally so anyway it was an incredible opportunity i connected with a lot of really fabulous people out there um and that led me to start thinking about, you know, how can I lend my skills to different maritime organizations to raise awareness that these ships are still out there to get kids out on the water. So I did another voyage with um, the Oliver Hazard Perry, a new ship in Rhode Island. Similar deal. Went out with them for a week with a bunch of teens and made comics about what life is like, you know, because people just want to know. They're just curious. But on the back of all of that, the thing that started to kind of turn. No, the hold corner, on a second. Wow, I just, wow, wow. Hold on. Okay. So. I understand you're out here on the uh, Charles W. Morgan. Yeah. Uh, you did one day. Yep. And before you, there was probably some other artist that was invited out there. Oh, yeah. Documentary. Every leg. It was like right. more people, more now, people. But you actually sail. Were these were these other... I mean, t- I want... Surely you impressed the hell out of the crew when you were like... 
jumping on the line and helping out and stuff. The thing that was really charming about it actually was that I think all tall ship crews develop this very uh, personal language. There, there are like call and response jokes there. It's a very, you know, all the things about, um, <clears throat> sea shanties being used to facilitate various actions on board a vessel. There are certain songs for raising halyards. There are certain songs for laying anchor chain, like all this stuff. Right. And uh, I think the thing that actually really charmed me most of all was that as we were casting off from the tug, because the Morgan doesn't carry an engine, she was towed out to the sanctuary, um, was that as the tug was casting off, uh, the people on the tug said, have fun storming the castle, that line from Princess Bride. Um, uh-huh. And then the other person on the tug said, do you think it'll work? And the people on board said, it'll take a miracle. <laughs> and it's like typically, and it just it threw me because I was like, wait, we're on the other side of the country. Sailors on the West Coast say, have fun storming the castle when they cast off lines. <laughs> and it was lovely because it's like, it's a modern film reference. It's not that we're right. all out there exclusively using references from the 1800s. Yeah. But it's this continuation of a verbal tradition no it's like kidding. folding in new jokes new ticks new whatever so i really loved getting to be a part of it there were logistical uh constraints that you know they were like hey who wants to climb the rigging and i'm like oh me um <laughs> but you know the coast guard says that i can only go to a certain location i can't right. climb over the top pla- the top platform or like go higher so it well, was something that i was very keen to do but i also recognized that there were constraints in place to keep everybody safe. i just think it's so cool that you managed to turn these two passions of yours into a successful brand that was sought out. And uh, not only is the, does this allow you to expand your audience and your kind of community of readers mm-hmm. um, and, and fans and people that are interested in your following your work, but it, it also uh, speaks to just cartooning generally now mm-hmm. and how, and where we're at. And I know, you know, we've, we've, touched on this before on this show but i'm just uh this other book that you have on the table here is mapping the seafloor Mm -hmm. Uh, and i understand that you were uh, a resident an artist in residence on a research vessel that transited the pacific ocean Mm -hmm. mapping the seafloor along the way using we'll get it appears some sort of side scanning sonar and maybe some other techniques yeah here. multi-beam sonar multi-beam which is very high t- it's a very far cry from 19 this ain't you know, a tall ship no this is a different beast so i'm and i'm pausing here because uh ladies and gentlemen um over the past since we founded aspn we've done a number of shows with uh, folks from NOAA, folks from the Army Corps of Engineers, folks from municipalities, coastal municipalities that are trying to produce compelling literature for everything from safety all the way to uh, how to properly access a beach if you're a a tourist. I mean, there's Uh all sorts of of, uh, getting information out and telling... especially when it's um, NOAA and it's this, these, you know, we're trying to communicate science. Yeah. This is a, this is an area where um, let's be real. We've really struggled. The coastal community has really struggled to get it um, consumable. If yeah, you will. Sure. And here we have a comic map in the seafloor. This is a, a, an adventure that you went on on a really cool uh, scientific vessel, but tell us quickly about the, um, the trip itself and then tell us about how you did this how you decided how you broke down this problem of telling these stories of the science that was being done on board yeah sure uh so the the thing that i think is cool about this is how small this community is because 
I wasn't aware uh, that RV Falcor is the name of the vessel that I went out on. They're a privately owned oceanographic research vessel that allows scientists to come aboard and do research in different cruises around the globe in exchange for making their findings publicly available. So it's kind of an open source science project. And uh, I would never have known about their program had I not been contacted by a former tall ship sailor who now worked as a, an engineering tech, I believe, tech engineering lead on Falcor, she had read Baggy Wrinkles. I think she'd actually backed the book on Kickstarter and so had been attached to it from its inception and uh, had created you know, this relationship with other members of the crew and said, hey, I'm on board this thing, but I reached out to the management and showed them your stuff. They're very keen to have you come. Would you be willing to apply for this? You can apply, you know, quote unquote, but um, they yeah. really want to have you here. So I uh, looked into it. It sounded really cool. Um, definitely a far cry from stuff I'd done before. But like, honestly, things that get me out in the world, like I've definitely, the, this is the maritime stuff that I brought. But along the, the way, I was doing comics about whitewater rafting through the Grand Canyon. I've been doing comics about, you know, this, um, the, this resurgence of wind-powered uh, shipping organizations transporting goods from country to country with tall ships without the use of fossil fuels like i've been dipping my toes in other comics journalism opportunities and really what i'm trying to do is meld the very intense love of the outdoors that i got growing up in ojai you know and being in nature so much as a kid with a very sedentary profession cartooning is typically like you sit in a room by yourself and don't talk to anybody for two years and then you come out with a graphic novel right it's not great if you're a fan of the outdoors so <laughs> this is why so hence you, the term adventure cartoon i just have to ask just a quick aside do you cartoon when you're doing this do you cartoon at sea yes okay. um the, so the trip on falcor for example um this was a voyage where actually uh, two, two three years ago i guess i uh left ojai on um the day after christmas i think boxing day i went and we drove to la i got on a plane i flew to guam and then uh, boarded Falcor. The next morning, we set off and spent three weeks transiting across the Pacific to Honolulu. And in that three-week time period, I had to get to grips with the vessel and its operation, which was very different from anything I'd ever I done imagine before. It was a far you basically did what, like... Um it was like reverse holodeck from Star Trek. Sure, exactly. Yeah, you know? I'm like, I'm used to the 18th century thing. You get yeah. there and you're like, where's the, there's no, there's no lines to there's haul. There's no lines. And like the deckhands are hanging around and I'm like, what do you, what do you do all day? And they're like, eh, you like squeegee the windows every so often. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but it was, it was wild. It was like this very fancy, you know, it was almost like a hotel, right? But with bulkheads and everything. Um, and so I had to get to grips with the vessel. I had to be producing um, blog posts and helping. There was a media coordinator on board who was doing sort of short documentary pieces and animations explaining the science that was being done on the vessel. Um, and there were other educators, no other artists on that particular leg, but uh, folks who were, you know, school teachers, um, other like say there was a father son team from 11th Hour Racing who do um racing and conservation work and they were there doing more interpretation related stuff and uh i had to get to grips with the science crew as well who were this mapping team who were there to do ocean floor mapping around the johnston atoll and uh i didn't know anything about sonar multi-beam mapping like any of that kind of stuff i'm not really a scientific person but it was an amazing opportunity because i think you know as you're pointing out a lot of these communities and organizations are struggling to get their information out to the public in a way that is compelling and sexy and attractive yeah. and whatever. And what's hard that about is a that, problem. 
the sexy problem. <laughs> it's yeah. real. Um, and a lot of this stuff is scary or it's complex or you're dealing with people who, you know, like me grew up thinking, oh, I'm just not good at math or I'm not good at science. And so when I hear mathy, sciencey things, my brain shuts down. And if you pair those things with visual analogies, most people can intuitively understand what it is you're talking about. And the thing that's hard, I think, is that a lot of scientists in their uh, publication history are trained to scrub every trace of personality from their work because you have to be objective. And I understand that. But the, the real catch is that when you talk to these people, you know, meeting the science crew, I was like, oh, boy, scientists, I don't know. It turns out, you know, cartoonists and scientists have a lot of things in common. Namely, we're both enormous nerds. And <laughs> like, that's really what I'm interested in in my practice is connecting with people who are really passionate about the thing that they do, it doesn't really matter what that thing is because enthusiasm is contagious, right? It's a contagious disease. And you want to get people excited and curious, right? I started telling a lot of hokey jokes about like, you gotta get your vitamin C. C is for curiosity and also for preventing scurvy. Um, <laughs> please eat this lemon. Um, but it was really amazing to meet these scientists because they were just so they were such characters and they were so passionate about what they did. And there were like marine geologists and there were mapping experts and, you know, people who had just been pioneers in this field. And so it wasn't hard, you know, to take the stuff that they were passionate about. And it was amazing to be cooped up in this vessel with them because usually if I'm researching on my own, I'm firing off questions over email, you know, or whatever. And we were mapping around the clock so I could just come down and like hop into a chair, you know, while I'm helping out with mapping stuff and be like, hey, can you uh, can you tell me whether I've got this right? You know, can you confirm yeah. whether I goofed this up? And so with all of their input, I was able to craft uh, a comic. And th this was to your point about, are you, am I doing this on site or am I doing it at home? I really prefer to work in the moment if I can, or at least, you know, to get sketches down. But with Falcor, it was especially dicey because uh, we had an art show for multiple Artist at Sea program participants that was happening in Honolulu the day we arrived. Wow. And so it was like, cool, get on the boat, learn everything you can, write a script. We're like sending stuff back and forth via satellite internet to the office so they can fact check it and make sure that everything is okay. And then I had to pencil and letter and draw the whole comic so that when we got to Honolulu, we could run over to the gallery and put it up and like have it on display. So the colored version that you see now, we've printed thousands of these um, and given them away at um, maritime conferences. We've given talks and presentations. It's been really popular as a learning resource. And it's like my favorite thing to do is to send them to school teachers because it offers this opportunity to connect with a very real piece of maritime science. And it's also extra fun because like the ship is named after the luck dragon from the never ending story. And so there's a big like there's never ending story quotes all over the boat in vinyl on the bulkheads and very cool. I got to say, this is a uh, this is so cool. And um, I really think that uh, I, I, well, when I found out that you were you do this stuff, I the real I mean, obviously we could have done a show. We could have done five shows about your experience just on tall ships, oh, sure. uh, your love for the ocean and how you became a successful, uh, you know, a published cartoonist and writer and so on and so forth. But this, this problem right here is, I think that just the, it's the meat, it's, it's the like meat of it. Something clicked, you know, I this had is so many moments. Yeah. The, this is feeling important. like this is it, you know, like I had many, many, like I rang in the new year in the middle of the ocean. There was nothing around sitting on this boat, drawing comics. And I remember having this moment of absolute transcendental happiness of just like getting up and watching the sunrise every morning and having this experience of like, Oh, this is exactly where I am supposed to be doing exactly what I let want me, to be doing. Let me ask you a question. Um, this is a question I ask myself all the time uh -huh. <laughs> doing podcasts, but 
um, for, I think for a, a good chunk of our audience, um, even though, like you said, we're going through the cartoon renaissance, I think, mm-hmm. I think we've all seen that. Um, look no further than the movies that are being made now. And sure, yeah. I mean, there's there's just a much more, uh, you know, cartoons are uh, not just children's material or silly things that, mm-hmm. you know, they're, these are uh, genuinely recognized high art for storytelling. But um, who is your, when you're doing this, who is your audience? Is it, are, who, do you, who are you thinking of? Mm, when I started making books, it's interesting, like I'm working on Baggy Wrinkles, you know, I was producing comics mostly to please myself. And uh, that's a real problem when you start encountering librarians or booksellers who are like, great, what age is this for? It's the number one question. When you put out a book, yeah. everyone's like, what age range is this? And I'm like, anyone but that's not what they want you know they want like it's no. a middle grade book it's a teen yeah. book it's a, a they want to sell it to some right demographic. to a demographic which i totally get it makes perfect sense and it did get marketed as a middle grade book and it was very popular in that vein but i have to say that you know based on the people that i've met like my work is equally popular with ex-navy dads as it is with like tiny nerdy queer children who want to know about alternative adventurous lifestyles rather than just growing up and becoming princesses like right it's it's for kids who were like me it's also for people who are enthusiasts about the golden age of sail and will never set foot on a tall ship who live in the middle of the country you know it's people who grew up going to maritime museums like it's such a wide range but i would say that um i I think that sense of one there's something about cartooning i I don't mean to interrupt but is there something about this method of storytelling Mm -hmm. that is conducive to that kind of breadth because this is one of the things when i'm when i'm thinking about the power of this work for you know, I'm thinking about like, you know, the take reduction team at NOAA that's trying to save the right whale. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it, when you read their materials as you, you know, these are government documents. Um, they, they're, they're, yeah. These are legal documents, ladies. They're no, no problem there. But when it comes to communicating those things and uh, getting the general public to understand what our federal agencies that we are paying for are doing and mm-hmm. why, why, how they're making the decisions they're making and the, how they are studying the behavior of these animals, so, so on and so forth. Or I, we could talk about the National Hurricane Center and they're, yeah. they're tr- and they're trying to communicate probability, which is hard for me to understand with, you know, <laughs> with the textbook in front of me. But you're, they're trying to do it with CNN blasting and, and the scare tech. Like, I just think that this uh, there is maybe a, um, a I think there's an incredible opportunity to oh, yeah. use cartoons here. This is not kids stuff is is basically no. what I'm trying to and, say. And culturally, yeah, I think we're in a moment where we're moving away from you know you see this this attitude um, really in, in previous generations a lot more of like oh comics are for kids, you know. And in the earlier when Mouse was coming out, there were a lot of headlines that were all Biff, Bam, Pow, comics aren't just for kids anymore. And it was kind of a catchphrase joke for a while because it was just all the media wanted to talk about. Whereas, as is often the case, the actual medium is like moving. You know, we're gone. Like, we're way over here. But it takes time for those things to catch up. And I think we're going to see this, too, in how popular media is. is, We're seeing all of the superhero content coming out. But actually, the number one best-selling book in America this year, in any form, in comics, prose, anything, was a middle grade graphic novel by an author named Raina Telgemeier. And uh, she writes incredibly successful books for young people that are graphic novels. And uh, her book was the, the number one bestseller in the country. And so it's not like, I think you could say comics aren't just for kids, but I also think comics really are for young readers. We are raising generations of kids who are coming up literate in this visual idiom. And as they get older, we wanna be able to give them content that's still in this 
area, you know, in this medium, but is tackling bigger, broader, more complicated issues. There's an incredible trilogy of books um, by uh, a cartoonist named Nate Powell and Representative John Lewis um, called March, uh, which are all about the civil rights movement. And um, they've been incredibly popular in schools. There's been amazing interaction between Center for Cartoon Studies did a comic called This is What Democracy Looks Like, where they toured around the country talking to kids about voting rights. Like you're starting to see and th- this gets back to your notion of like how powerful comics can be and what our what our responsibility is. That's a lot of what I think about right now yeah. is like where does the onus lie? You wield the power. Yeah. And if you have that power, like it's not that all of us have to stop doing what we're doing and go out and become firefighters. You know, it's not that we all have to start getting medical degrees. Like you can take, and I think it's probably best to take the thing you are most passionate about and most skillful at and turn it towards the betterment of our cultural moment right now. And so I think with work like this, you know, if you're talking about like, who am I aiming at? I think it's more, I'm aiming at people who give a damn or who are scared that they can't give enough of a damn. And I want to extend a hand to them and let them know, hi, like I'm a, I I try to put myself into my comics. I try to be a presence that people can recognize and say, oh, wow, there's a person taking me on this journey. This isn't because that's the thing with baggy wrinkles. When I describe it to people, they're like, wait, but you really do that? You know, like you, you really go on that tall ship. And I'm like, yes, me. And when I go to schools, like when I talk to kids, that's the biggest thing. They're like, you, the person standing in front of me, go on the big pirate ship. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm." and they're like, whoa, I didn't know Mm -hmm. that was a thing. And so I think if you can do that with science, you know, if you can convey to children or adults that this is a thing that happens, because we all live in like bubbles of isolated fantasy. In our pre-interview, we were talking about this idea of like, there are you know communities of people in middle america who the ocean is like they've never been yeah you know they don't know what it's like it's it's an unbelievable thing it's like too vast to really comprehend even you know having gone across huge chunks of it or been on it on on a sailing vessel it's like it's still so big and understanding you know glo- we started talking in the pre-interview about global trade routes and shipping and like yes we did boy that's a whole we could do a whole other show i about don't that. know you know i think <laughs> we don't have we, time. Might, we don't we we don't but i do i want to i do want to wrap up we have a few more minutes yeah. but i do think you're you're totally right about um you know dip, everyone has their own relationship with the planet and with the spaces that make up the planet and the way that we think of, you know, the way we categorize those spaces and interface with those spaces and um, uh, conceptualize those spaces is Mm -hmm. entirely based on not just our physical presence there, but our uh, media consumption and, you know, basically the way that these spaces are framed up for us. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, you are so right to meet people where they are. And um, by you being a character in all these stories, um, you are, you know, this particle that kind of moves through the story for us. Um, not only is that something that's accessible because you're an interesting person. You're a 30-year-old woman who's, like, gone out into this universe that's... Shouldn't most people don't still. even don't know most people don't even know exist but if it were to exist in your mind you'd probably think it's a male dominated like sure yeah like, what are you doing there and and you love it and you've and i just think i really think that you've um 
found something that we all sh- we all in the coastal community in the management community the government community the elected official community and yes even the business and vendor community out there the professional class needs to understand that this style of communication mm-hmm. is going to increasingly be important yeah um, and, and cartoonists need to understand it too I think I do just as much awareness raising for cartoonists saying like hey your skill set you know there are people who just want to tell fantasy stories and I think that's absolutely amazing because we need that stuff just as much as we need the gritty realism because all of it is about the condition of being human and about caring to save things that you love and like I think it's all relevant but I also think for um, just talking about from a business growth standpoint you know I'm doing comics not just for these small maritime operations but like I did work for Google last year helping them explain machine learning in comics and right. that is you know there there is a whole untapped market here for cartoonists with a very specific set of skills if you're a visual storyteller and you're curious about the world and you can learn quickly and translate that into pictures like I want other artists to be doing this because NOAA ships have artist in residence programs you know like so many artist in residence areas are on pieces of land that have an ecological, you know, component to their charter and there are there are, the opportunities are there, right? And so I think it's I was really excited to talk to you because I think it's amazing that a podcast like this exists and that you're bringing these people together because I think understanding the the shared issues that are facing these communities and then like what we could be doing to better illuminate them and bring them to a wider audience is like that's where the future lies. Yes, uh, and thank you for that. Now, Lucy, I just know that uh, our audience, I think there's two things that our audience will want to know. One is where they can find your work, Mm -hmm. and the other is how they can get in touch with you, because you might... some of them might field some calls. You might field some calls here. (laughs) It wouldn't surprise me if there was some interest in uh, talking to you about, um, you know, some of... I know that there are all sorts of uh, gnarly communications challenges out there on the American shoreline and beyond. So uh, where can folks get in touch with you, Lucy? So the places you can find me uh, are mostly detailed on my website, which is Lucy, L-U-C-Y, Bellwood, B-E-L-L-W-O-O-D.com. And there's a contact tab there where you can get in touch with me. I've got an email address up there. Um, I have a mailing list, which I update sporadically with information about new adventures and stuff. Um, the, and then I'm on various social media platforms. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at LuBellWu, L-U-B-E-L-L-W-O-O. And the, the primary thing I would say, if people are curious about the real nuts and bolts of what I'm working on and what's coming up next, is I have a Patreon page, which is a platform where uh, folks like your audience can pledge a couple bucks a month to help enable me to do what I do. A lot of these opportunities that I go out and take are unpaid and uncompensated. And so that's... Uh, actually become the thing that pays my rent every month which is absolutely stunning and humbling Uh, it's taken like four or five years I think but it's it's there and it's um, the bedrock of my creative practice so I try to share as much as I can there about just behind the scenes content of like what I'm working on what I'm wrestling with Uh, I can tease that currently uh, I'm about to post a whole load of character designs for a uh, piratical historical adventure involving a crew of hapless capybaras. <laughs> um, so if you're looking for a little bit of light comedic relief, I would highly recommend going and checking that out. That sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, and the thing the thing that I have coming up this year that I think people might be interested to follow, just a, pr- a purpose of our conversation, um, is that I am traveling with a residency called the Arctic Circle to Norway on a Barkentine sailing vessel. For two and a half weeks in June, so I'm going to be making some work around that and talking about um, Arctic conservation specifically uh, and tall ship sailing. Which 
I'll tell you what, oh Lucy. Boy. Why don't we make a uh, a New Year's resolution here? On the first, that when you return to port after that uh, and, and get back stateside, yeah, let's do a follow-up show. I, I think our audience I think that would, would be great. love to hear about that experience and um, share that with us. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Lucy Bellwood, the professional adventurer cartoonist, and uh, she's absolutely awesome. I'm looking at her work here, and it is just so beautiful I, I we could go on for hours as you know uh i love to talk to people like you it's just fantastic stuff but uh we will sign off so that we can enjoy our beauty the sun is setting here at the beach and uh, it's going to turn into a lovely evening so we're going to sign off thank you so much ladies and gentlemen have a wonderful new year uh enjoy the rest of your vacations and we will be back on the air uh soon with more great content on the american shoreline podcast network <laughs>